Hello, everyone. Welcome to Word with Dave Clay. The great lament for most of us who are in the field of psychology is we do not get an opportunity to help people until they get into bad situations that lead to difficulties emotionally and sometimes physically that go along with that. And it's always after the fact. Uh, I would still (laughs) be aspirational uh, with an idea of, of trying to prevent things or at least the hope that we could get better at preventing things. But I suppose everything in life tends to be that way. Well, why fix it if it ain't broken, right? We, heard, we hear that saying. We've heard that saying before. And psychology is no different. Psychology Today, March, April of 2023. <clears throat> Excuse me. Alexander Danvers, Ph.D., How an Infant's Heart Influences Their Mother's Depression. An infant's temperament, gauged by studying their heart rate, can have a profound effect on their mother's postpartum depression, a connection that's crucial crucial for others to understand. Although a new birth often brings joy, as many as one in seven New mothers will experience postpartum depression in the year after their baby is born, typically lasting three to six months, but sometimes leading to chronic or recurring depression. Babies themselves have distinct temperaments, and some express more negative emotions and have a harder time self-soothing. Babies with less regulated temperaments can actually change how their mothers feel about themselves as parents with significant downstream consequences. Recent research explores the underlying physiological basis of this effect. According to decades of research, patterns of heart rate variability are related to our ability to regulate emotions. That is, a tendency to flexibly adapt to stress and deal with your own feelings is reflected in the patterning of your heartbeats over time. One of the most widely used methods, widely used methods of estimating heart rate variability is to measure respiratory sinus arrhythmia, or RSA. This measure tries to isolate the activity of the parasympathetic rest and digest system as it influences the heart. Previous research found that infants with lower RSA displayed more negativity and reacted more to new situations, suggesting that RSA may be a basic physiological indicator of poor infant self-regulation. In a recent study by Jennifer Somers of Arizona State University and colleagues, the researchers followed mothers for three years after the birth of their children to gauge how maternal postpartum depression and poor infant self-regulation might combine. They found that if mothers were high in postpartum depression and their infants naturally had a hard time regulating themselves, there were several negative outcomes, including the mothers feeling less confident in their ability to be good parents and having worse depression symptoms three years later. 
The study suggests that we can think of a mother and infant as influencing each other. If an infant was easier or easy, postpartum depression didn't matter as much. Mothers still felt confident in their ability to parent and it didn't end up with later levels of depression. On the other hand, if the infant was more reactive and less able to soothe itself, then postpartum depression did matter. With infants who were naturally more difficult, mothers with more symptoms of depression ended up feeling less confident and their symptoms endured longer than did those of other mothers. Both the mother's state of mind after birth and the infant's particular physiology contribute to the way the mother feels throughout the child's early years. Many parents worry whether they are doing enough to make sure their children are healthy and happy, but a strong bond is only partially under their control. Children are born with their own personalities and differences in physiology, and this can have a real effect on how the relationship unfolds. Infants who are fussy might present more challenges leading to a very different experience or to very different experiences for mothers. What might be easy or right for one mother won't work for another, not because of their capacities to parent, but because of the needs and demands of their particular babies. Alexander Danvers, Ph.D., he's a social psychologist with an interdisciplinary approach to research. Once again, the article, How an Infant's Heart Influences Their Mother's Depression. A priori, something that otherwise occurs, (laughs) at least with conceptualization, as within connection, as within correlation to something that follows. (laughs) And usually in terms of research, if we are left with an effect, again at the beginning of the podcast, the lament is, I wish we could prevent all of this. But oftentimes, not only but, oftentimes we don't see it until after the fact, and then only when it seems to create enough distress or difficulty that we'd care to attend to it. If it ain't broken, don't fix it. And maybe in the same sort of a way we tend to see childbirth, (laughs) that you really don't appreciate it until the child's born. And then you look at the child and you say, well, that's the point, right? That's when it all starts is when the child's born. I would probably be inclined to believe that a priori, even before you see the child, and therein, in this article, the mother would react or be reactive to the child's disposition, including physiological and then with personality, psychological dimension, difficult versus easy child, fussy I would want to say, though, there's much to be said a priority as in maybe this great hope of prevention, primary care, and its best of sort of aspirations. I don't only want to see a person after they get sick. As a clinician, I would want to see my patient, (laughs) it would be a patient then, right, before they get sick. But that's the beauty of prevention, 
And if we can, as with research, which Alexander Danvers is, interdisciplinary approach, to research as a subspecialty to his social psychology degree, his PhD. If we were to see that, though, as with a relationship, social, even prior to the birth of the child, I then think we might begin to understand while the child is still in the mother before they're birthed, from that point of conception, the mother is influencing the child in so many ways that we may yet have really accurate measure of. And though the research that Alexander Danvers points to is sound, it's all after the fact. <laughs> and if a child is born and is having difficulties, or with that a more difficult child, and even so there may be personality dimension, why would we not think, though, that whatever was going on with the mother from the point of conception may have also influenced the child in utero? In, in the mother. And the way all the biochemistry works, the way the formation of the development of the child physiologically, and the mother's even so part in that as the child's starting to form individuality or difference as would manifest itself most fully when the umbilical cord is cut at birth. Up to that point, whatever is going on biochemically with the mother is contributing to the formation, possibly even so, the, the programming, if you want to call it that, already having a distinctive effect on the child. Yes, genetics are genetics. And even so, the mother and father, that's going to have predominant influence in the sense of the baseline, what you are giving then this new sort of identity, individual, personality, once they're born... They're now named, and they're separate from the mother. They are separated from the mother. But even so, what happens biochemically? The mother, is she anxious? Is her sympathetic nervous system overactive? Uh, is she having a fairly settled pregnancy? Is her personality inclined has she found the way to relax and manage her own stress levels and heart regulation? Is she under duress by other environmental or, as with Alexander Danvers, social psychologist, psychosocial sort of factors? Uh, I don't know. I don't know that the research doesn't take that into account. I'm pretty sure this article, though, did not seem to suggest that that was all taken into account. But what crosses the blood-brain barrier and becomes part of the same blood and the way that the child is nurtured in the womb is going to get into the child's 
brain, central nervous system, brain, the origins of, I presume, the psychological construct of personality, disposition, even before they become separated from their mother as individuals, either physically or more so psychologically, that's going to impact the child. And going specifically to the point of heart rate, isn't that what they measure oftentimes? Is the heartbeat of the child. And though I know that all the physiology as with biochemistry and then the heartbeat of the mother as with the sympathetic, again, nervous system and norepinephrine and adrenaline and stress and stress reaction and all of that can increase heart rate. It is a good measure, likely, of a child's heart rate, but I'm Believing that there could be some synchronization even while they were in womb between the mom and the baby. And then once born, as if that would not be traumatic for both mother and infant, there needs to be then that moment where the child and the mother are in some ways connected again. And I think... As much as we've learned anything immediate to the birth, the child needs to spend some time with the mom. And it's not just pheromones. It's not just just the warmth of the body, although I'm sure both of those are factors. I, I would not pretend that I'm an expert or know all the factors, but lay the baby on the mother's chest and what begins to happen? The heart rate. What begins to happen? A calibration. What begins to happen is a synchronization. And hopefully with that postpartum, the mother is going to be able to continue to soothe the child. And they're going to continue to have moments like that. Maybe in prevention, certain dimensions, we should encourage that. And maybe we do already and maybe that's it maybe it's now once given the knowledge is there and given the information it's up to the parent what they're going to do particularly as much the mom would represent as with primary source that baby well maybe not primary mom and dad's genetics but the mom is the most immediate to the birth that literal separation aspect of separation the mom needs to take that time and spend that time and be able to maintain that connection so that all of that then would not only be synchronized, but in the best of ways, as the mother is able to continue to stay in that good spot, turn off the sympathetic nervous system operations, norepinephrine and adrenaline, have a more stable sort of postpartum experience, be able to then nurture the child as well or properly, and then with that, hopefully, <laughs> encourage then parasympathetic predominance, relaxation, calm, uh, uh, oxytocin, endorphins, GABA, 
Those are neurotransmitters that all go with parasympathetic, primary drives, meeting the primary drive. All of that could mitigate a lot of even genetic predisposition as with personality and as with even disease model. And I don't disagree with Alexander Danvers, Danvers, I guess, conclusions that, that the child can influence the mother, but who should be the one that is leading and in what way do they lead? Uh, it's mostly in these sort of basic primary care, literally, sort of measures. There may be certainly genetic risks for all sorts of problems, and that in and of itself will make it difficult for the mother and maybe subject her maternally, postpartum, to depression. Maybe she's got her own genetic predispositions to depression. But what we can manage and control, we should. That's prevention. Let's not wait till it's a problem or manifests itself only as a problem. Let's do everything we can in advance. So much for all of that that we do know in terms of knowledge and optimal in terms of trying to make the best experience for the mother, health-wise, psychologically, to optimize then our ability to make decisions and choices that the child, infant, really does not have. But should that then only be limited to the child and mother? Think it not strange then that at any point along the way, should an individual become so separated from their significant other, initially it would be like most likely parents, primary caregivers, but even down the road, spouses. If you're not making that physical connection, if you're not allowing yourself in that same sort of way, it doesn't change. To be connected to another person as best could be in physical proximities, as within two individuals coming together physically, why would you not expect then to, there to be adverse or negative outcomes or results? Why would we not see then evidences of some disorder or some emotional, psychological, even physiological difficulty? We need to be connected. That's emotionally, but it's physically And it needs to probably be there as much as possible throughout our entire life. It needs to be from birth to death in that dimension of significant others. And with that, know that emotionally, psychologically, lest there be some abusive aspect of that, then we should always default to that. And to even remove as much as possible the potential for there to be abuse, neglect, something of that line, we should highlight the social dimension as with, I'm sure, Alexander Danvers. I'm pretty confident he would support 
what I'm saying. Research would support what I'm saying. That we do a terrible job of that in our culture. We're not good at that. And though we understand independence and autonomy, and maybe that is just simply because there's plenty of things in life that's going to separate us from our primary family, social support, primary support systems. But we should always be looking to get back home. We should always be looking to connect. We should always be looking for ways to be together, not only emotionally, not only psychologically, but even in physical terms. We are social creatures. And unfortunately, a lot of these things, if we don't, going back to mother-child and even a priority before the child is born, if we don't take care of it there, that may be where all of the ills come from, or at least a good measure of the social psychosocial difficulties, psychological difficulties come from. Because that bond is so crucial. It's not that after birth we should be any less appreciative or we shouldn't do all that we can to preserve those connections. But if you don't do that from the moment of conception, recognize that even at the moment of conception is when all of this begins to unfold, then we run the risk that even so, everything is going to be psychological care as an after the fact. I want to help people if I'm left with that. And I believe all of this at some point or another because of just the way the natural world is and loss is in this world. We're going to have to contend with the loss of a loved one or those social connections are not going to be able to be preserved for all sorts of reasons. I don't feel badly about helping people. I want to help people. But I want to help people from the beginning to the end. I don't want to help or if I'm negligent in appreciating the value, the importance, the significance of even a priority before birth of that relationship and preserving that and helping the mother and the father to have a best quality of life possible then we're just going to be left with fixing problems. I don't want to fix problems, I, at least not always after the fact. I'd like to really, as with aspiration, help beforehand. All that prenatal care, all of that care that goes into the mother, that's the emphasis. If we want to solve a lot of social problems in this world, that's where we need to begin. And I know we do. I'm just trying to put it front and center in in response to the article, how an infant's heart influences their mother's depression. I'd like to reverse it and say how a mother's heart influences their infant's not only heart, but their life. Let's not lose sight of that. Accepting that the latter applies, how an infant's heart influences their mother's depression. Let's just recognize who's responsible Who's the one in the best position to do the best we can should be able to do 
to provide the best life for anyone. And it's got to be the mother. And whatever nuclear family system constellation you want to call it, that's where we win. At least that's where we don't lose. We may not always be able to control everything, but if we can manage that or do what we can to manage that in the healthiest of ways, culturally, individually, education, prevention, let's do it. And that's what I do or why I do the podcast is I want to provide this information. I think it's great information. I love reading Psychology Today. It's really easy to read and it gives me the information without necessarily too much deep diving into all the statistics of it. And their articles are vetted. I believe that all of it's sound research and the conclusions I'm open to a healthy dialogue, differences even of opinion. We're all entitled to our opinion. But the podcast is intentioned to do the same thing. Take that and then kind of create a bit of a dialogue between me and you, the podcast listener. And should I be successful at that? Maybe I can help or assist you in not only gaining valuable information and knowledge, as from all this great research that is reported, that's out there, available, and Psychology Today offers us a window into. But maybe we could kind of put our heads together, so to speak, and apply it. And that would be my great also hope or aspiration, is that I can encourage you to be healthy. (laughs) Not only psychologically healthy, as I say, but also physically healthy. I'm wanting you to have the best life possible. But that's why we do the podcast. And what is the podcast? Word with Dave Clay. And what would I want you therefore to do? Take the information, use it, hopefully can do the best you can in terms of applying it to the end of not only good psychological, but bodily health, physical health. And once more, come back and join us again. Uh, This is something that I find to be probably my best way of a priority, uh, contributing to preventing bad things from happening to people, or at least in that bad sort of way, unnecessary, undue difficulties. So if you're on board with any of that, again, I'd like to welcome you back to our next podcast. In the meantime, good health and good mental health. And once again, thanks.